Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I'm honored to have Tim Bratz with me. Um, he is the founder of Legacy Wealth Holdings, and one of the things that I think uh, you are going to hear in our story and our conversation today is even when things get tough, if you believe in the mission and you're passionate about what you're doing, you're willing to work through those hard moments to get to where you want to go. So Tim, thanks so much for being on today. Yeah, Phil, appreciate the invite, man. Excited to be here. You bet. So growing up, just talking a little bit about, um, you know, examples we have in our life, you talked about how your dad had like a side business. And so you started to see a little bit of kind of what entrepreneurship looked like. So talk, you know, a bit about growing up, seeing that as an example from an early age. Yeah, man. Well, I, uh, I don't know. I guess I've always been um, interested, I guess, in money. And yeah. the concept of having money and, and those kinds of things um, always kind of, I don't know, uh, you know, early on, it was because of the material type stuff that I thought I could buy. Now it's more because of the impact and things that you can do with it. But I've always been interested in money. So I kind of like paid attention to uh, what my dad was doing, what other people did. I always thought I wanted to be a doctor or uh, uh, an attorney or something white collar like that. And my dad was a cop, right? I came from a blue collar family. My mom had a teaching degree and my dad was a policeman. So it doesn't get more blue collar than that. We're from suburban Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, uh, yeah, growing up, I saw my dad working as a full-time police officer. and uh, But he had this part-time business that really paid for the lifestyle type of expenses, the vacations and uh, making sure that my brothers had a car when they turned 16 and uh, paying for uh, college, you know, those kinds of things. And, um, uh, I remember looking at this, my dad and my parents, you know, go to school, get good grades, get a good job, you know, all that kind of, that whole thing. And, uh, and I was like, well, dad, like, well, you have this business, it's a part-time business, yeah. not knowing anything really about business. I just asked a simple kid question of like, if you make more or just as much money in your part-time business as you do in your full-time job, could you make more money if you quit your full-time job and just went yeah. all in on your business. Right. That, that was simple math to me. <laughs> and uh, he's like, well, you know, I got, I got these, these four crazy kids, you know, you're one of them, Tim. And uh, I got to pay for school. I got to do this. And I, we need health insurance and all these yeah. other expenses. So, but the, the concept of realizing that the business is what paid for the activities, the lifestyle. And, and, and listen, it's, it was a blue collar lifestyle, but we were able to go on trips and we were able to have a nice home and we were, yeah. we never, there was never a, a need or want right for other things. And uh, it wasn't extravagant by any means, but it was uh, not being stressed about money because my dad had this part-time business. And I, I realized that and I recognized that. And I kept on thinking like, you know, I want to own a business. Like that's my thing, but I didn't know what an industry uh, or which industry. And I saw my dad, my dad's was in security and like personnel security for factories and foundries and apartment buildings and hospitals and things like that. And uh, uh, when I was going through college, 03 to 07, I saw everybody making money in real estate. And I remember thinking, uh, well, well, meeting people who were not that bright, who were making a lot of money in real estate and thinking, if this person's making money, I'm going to get rich doing this, you know? Cause yes. Uh, uh, anybody who could fog a mirror could make money in real estate back at 03 to 07 when I was in college. And so I decided to kind of lean towards that real estate side of things and just realize, you know, uh, you can be in a race car um, or, or, or in a race, right? And I could be 
in a Ferrari and you can be in a Ford Pinto and we can be driving down the street. I'm going to win, not because I'm better, right? Just because I'm in a better vehicle. Mm -hmm. And if we stopped at the next stoplight and we got out and I got in the Ford Pinto and you got in the Ferrari, you would beat me because you're in the better vehicle. And I quickly realized that real estate was not an experiment. It's not some tech startup. It's not some um, uh, unproven model or mode to build wealth. I just liked that real estate was time proven, time tested, and it was a better financial vehicle to get to where you were going. And so I uh, I leaned in on that vehicle and focused on real estate as soon as I graduated from college. Yes. So before we get to there, um, you know, I think one one comment that I hear from, you know, your dad's conversation with you is, you know, there's inherent risk in being your own boss, right? Now, there's also risk in being an employee of something, right? Because you, you don't Very have awesome. the full control, but there's a different type of risk that becomes when you're the business owner. And you were quickly turned off to the idea of being an employee when you had a job in high school and you were supposed to be heading to a baseball game and uh, an altercation uh, pre- presumes between you you and the business owner. So talk just a little bit about that you know younger moment that was like, all right, maybe business ownership is going to be the way I want to go. Yeah, I I was always a little bit entrepreneurial, right? Like I I, I had money in high, in high school. Um, to go out on the weekends and, you know, not, not, I, I never really had a job. Like I, I did have a, a job, I guess a little bit later on, but I always made money from like cutting my buddy's hair. Right. And I cut everybody's hair in high school and I'd make five to 10 bucks per haircut. Um, or I, I like, this is back in the day of mixed CDs. Right. Yeah. So I, I download songs on Napster and audio galaxy and stuff and make a mix CD for somebody and sell it to them for five bucks. Uh, they give a list of all the songs that they wanted. And then I, I make that. So it was like a little bit entrepreneurial in that regard. And I didn't like being told what to do. Um, I was always the one who created the plans on the weekends. What's everybody doing? Nobody had plans unless I organized them. And, um, and so I had a little bit of that inside of me. So when I went to college, I knew I wanted to get involved in the financial side. I actually interned with a financial, um, advisor, right. One summer, And they couldn't really pay me. I was able to learn, but I went and got a job, right? And so that's another kind of little bit of a lesson is sometimes, um, uh, you know, a lot of people like expect to be compensated for their time and for their value. And the reality is like, uh, I don't care about the value that you are. I care about the value that you add, you know, yeah. the value that you add uh, will dictate what the market can can pay you. But for me, I wasn't looking to just make money from that financial internship or, yeah. or job. I wanted to learn and I was mm. investing in my future, right? I was yeah. sacrificing current um, circumstances and making money in order to make an investment in my future. And there's a lot of people who don't get that, right? They, they want to be compensated for a dollar immediately or, or compensated for their work immediately. Um, I was always willing to get paid less or get paid nothing in order to invest in my future. Mm. And so that's a big takeaway for anybody yeah. who's like getting started. Um, but what I did because they couldn't pay me and I still had expenses, right. I had to put gas in the car and, uh, pay for Chipotle burritos and things like that. I, I went and worked for, um, a company that did essentially events and like rentals and stuff like that, event rental type stuff, um, supplies and and those kinds of things. And when I was working with this company, uh, who organized my co-ed softball league and team and stuff that summer as well. And I was just that person and I went to work. And I was supposed to work from Saturday or something. I was supposed to work from eight to one. 
And uh, I had a game at like 7 p.m. that night. And so I was supposed to work from eight to one. One o'clock rolls around. They asked me to keep on working later. I worked till three. Uh, eight. And then it's like 4.15 or something. And I'm like, I, I got to get going. And they wanted to send me out that I wouldn't get back till like 8 p.m. And I was like, sir, I, I you know, I came in early. All right. Yeah. I stayed late, later than I'm supposed to. Many hours later than I'm supposed to. I can work here until about that <clears throat> 5.45, 6 o'clock range. And then I got to get home, get changed, get to my game. I'm right. the you know, captain of the team. It's my team. Yeah. And uh, I got to be there. And um and, and, he, and he friggin berates me. He's like, you, are, are you kidding me? You want me to put my business on hold because da, 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 and, and, and you want to go play a baseball game? I was like, this is not for me, sir. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I made it over. I overcommitted to you. Yes. I've, I've gone above and beyond what you asked me. And, you know, your lack of preparation and your lack of planning does not constitute an emergency on my side. And I decided yes. I was like, hey, this is not for me. And uh, and I left and um I was the best friggin' worker there too, right? Like, cause yeah. I, I'm showing up early. I'm staying late. I never bitch or complain. I always, I'm the most responsible person to make sure things get done yeah. and, uh, and all these things. And, um, Hey, it, it, just like there's lessons from good mentors in yep. your life. There's lessons from bad mentors in your life. The Absolutely. bosses I don't want to be like yep. how I didn't want to treat my employees once I would eventually have them. And yeah. you learn these things along the way. And, you can take and pick and choose things from good mentors, but you don't have to take everything from yeah. that mentor, right? Like I would take financial advice from Donald Trump, but I would not take relationship advice from Donald Trump, right? Okay. Like there's things like that. Yeah. You pick and choose and you, you get an idea of um, uh, taking the things that you like, leaving the things that you don't, uh, but you need to be able to think, right? You need to be able to make those decisions. You need to be able to decipher through that information. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that was a lesson learned from, from that guy. So I quickly realized I'm not a really good employee, but I was willing to continue getting educated. And you know, it's, you know, it's funny, like, like two or three years after that, I took, uh, you know, all my friends were in this, um, or a bunch of them, not all my friends, but several of them got into like the, uh, pharmaceutical sales and they're making a hundred thousand dollars or 90,000, close to a hundred grand a year yeah. out of school. And I was like, that's what I want to be doing. Right. In order to start making a hundred grand a year. And I took a behavioral assessment and, uh, and it was essentially of like, do you follow rules? Can you follow a format? Can you follow a plan? And I'm thinking, you know, Hey, I, I, I was a great student and I was in all these academic things and I was uh, sociable and all this other stuff. I'm thinking this is a shoe in. Right. And I failed the behavioral <laughs> assessment because I can't follow directions. <laughs> and that's when I realized I need to own my own business because I, I, I'm not, I don't do well with people telling me what to do. And uh, yeah. I decided the only way I can get away with that is if I jump and start my own business. And and uh, fortunately, it's worked out. Yes. So well, one thing I want to highlight as we progress on is exactly what you just said there. And I think that is, you know, oftentimes we'll have people we really respect in our lives give us feedback in areas that they're not well equipped in. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like, just why? because you're good at making money doesn't mean you're a good I don't know, uh, moral compass of what I should be doing with my life. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, I think sometimes you say, well, I really trust my parents' opinion. And it's like, but if your parents have never run a business, probably not the best people to go to to get business right. advice, even though they're people that, you know, you trust a bunch. It's like their feedback may not align with what someone that has expertise in that area go with. But oftentimes we will listen to those insights, even though it may not be you know, beneficial information or knowledge for us. Yeah. Under, understanding the lens 
that somebody else is trying to give you, you know, uh, yeah. advice through is really important. And that's, and that comes with emotional intelligence, you know, and I, and I would say that that's probably one of those things, the most successful people I know in life, right. Um, they have influence, they're well-liked, they are successful in their business or they're successful in really like it's because they have emotional intelligence and social intelligence and self-awareness, like those kinds mm -hmm. of social awareness, self-awareness, that combination or that, that, uh, key skill set is what's really differentiated a lot of people, um, that are successful versus not successful people that I like to hang out with versus people I don't like to hang out with. It's that, it's that personal awareness and, um, and understanding, you know, what, what kind of lens are, are, you know, is the person you're talking to seeing the world through or giving you that insight through or giving you that advice through. And then you can better decipher the information. And then again, take what you want, leave what you don't. Um, and it allows you to just kind of make better decisions that way. That's awesome. I love it. So as you mentioned, you graduate college and you go ahead and your brother's living in New York. So you head out there to start in real estate, but you start in real estate in the selling and leasing side of real estate, uh, not in purchasing right away. So talk mm -hmm. about getting started in real estate in what, 07, 08. Uh, I'm sure that's an interesting dynamic <laughs> and time to get into the business. Yeah. So I graduated college in 07. My brother was living in New York. I ended up moving out there, like you said. And um, I think a lot of people don't realize, especially if you don't come from the real estate investing side, you start, you just think like, okay, I either go work for somebody who is a developer or investor, or I become a realtor. And that's like how you get involved in real estate. That's still what a lot of people think who aren't involved in real estate investing yeah. uh, or in that world. And so that's what I thought. And so I got my real estate license in New York City. And for some reason, I, I parked it with a commercial real estate brokerage, not like a residential brokerage where you yeah. help somebody you know, find their home or sell their home. Instead, I, I would represent a landlord or a business owner who had retail or office space and help them market that space or I'd represent a business owner that was looking for another location, looking to expand, looking to create a business um, in either retail or office space. And so that really opened my eyes to the world of investing mm -hmm. of, of, because I brokered a lease and uh, it wasn't like somebody who was buying their house and it's like, oh, it's my house and I'm going to pay for it for my job. It was, I, I brokered a lease uh, to a business and uh, my first one was like a 400 square foot space in, on a side street, Greenwich Village, New York City. And uh, it was 400 square feet and the lease was $10,000 a month. And this is one of eight retail spaces. And there were probably 10 or 15 stories of apartments above it. And I get to like doing the math. And I'm like, this landlord is going to make millions of dollars over the next 12 years over the lease term of this and for doing something one time. And yeah. plus you compound all the other retail spaces that were all much bigger than this one and all the apartments that, that he rented out above it. And I'm like, this is, this is how wealth is created. This is the real estate wealth that people have been talking about. Residual income. Yeah. Right. And I, I confused residual with passive back at the yeah. time. Not, and most people still do. Right. They're two very different things. Passive income, still looking for it. Still haven't found true passive income. Uh, residual income is a very serious thing. But even passive income, you need to actively underwrite a deal and invest and babysit it and all those things. But residual income is doing something once and getting paid on it over and over and over again and letting that compound. And how many mm -hmm. times can you go do a residual income producing activity? and allow all of that to uh, to compound. And 
that's what this landlord was doing. He had dozens, if not hundreds of, of apartments and retail spaces and ended up renting them out one time. And then that, that tenant would pay rent every single month for years and years on end. And you have not just money, but you have time, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when you find those residual income producing assets. Yes. And that's where I wanted to be. Yes. So in New York, though, real estate is a very expensive commodity to buy. And so you said, well, maybe this isn't the best spot for me to get started. And you moved to South Carolina, um, which is still expensive, but different than New York expensive. So talk a little bit about making that move and why you ended up picking South Carolina to uh, go to next. Yeah, very different 15 years ago than it was than it is today. You know, Um, it wasn't nearly as expensive as it is today. But yeah, I went to Charleston. It was really just a lifestyle type of a movement of wanting to get into some warm weather, but still be drivable back to Ohio and New York where my family was. And um, and so I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and I went through the stage that a lot of people go through, which is like analysis paralysis of Mm. reading all the books and listening to all the gurus and attending the courses and spending money on my credit card that I didn't really have in order to pay for mentorship and other courses and all that stuff. And, um, you know, try to learn everything before I ever did anything. Yes. That's that, uh, good in theory, but doesn't work in, in practicality of like, yeah. you have to be doing both. You have to be getting educated and taking action, um, uh, at all times. Right. Uh, uh um, doing both of them all the time and learning a little bit from other people, learning a little bit from reading books, learning a little bit from taking courses, and at the same time, implementing uh, that knowledge in real world action, having a little bit of that uh, street smart and school of hard knocks that comes with it. Um, if you just take action all the time, dude, you're going to be getting kicked in the crotch like I did for a decade before <laughs> you're ever any good versus um always reading about it in a book, but never taking and implementing any of that action, you never get ahead. So you need to be doing both of them at all times, right? You can't learn how to swim by reading about it in a book. And at the same time, there's certain things and techniques that you need to learn from other people before you get in the water. And so um, real estate's very, very similar to that. And so I, I this is, you know, um, fall of 2008, I'm ready to make the move and jump in and actually take action. And then just headlines everywhere of Lehman Brothers out of business, Bear Stearns out of business, real estate's the culprit. It's yeah. all real estate's fault. And I was like, damn, I just you know showed up to the party and everybody's running out the back door because uh, the cops already already busted. The gun, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh man. And um, but what was interesting is like I I didn't take out any stated income loans or no doc loans and uh, put a bunch of things on my credit that I couldn't afford. Like the timing wise, yeah. It was a blessing because I didn't do something stupid. If I was a year ahead, I would have done something stupid, not been prepared, not had the wisdom that I saw and or or learned the wisdom from what I saw. And um, uh, it was very fortunate because prices just just cratered and uh, went to the bottom. And there were deals everywhere, very different than today's market, where there was just so much supply on the marketplace um, of houses that you could buy for under a hundred thousand dollars in almost every market. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my goodness. The problem was I didn't have access to money and I didn't know how to raise money and I never had any experience. I'd never done a deal before. And everybody's saying run from real estate. Yeah. And I was 23 years old. And so nobody was going to invest with me. So I just started creatively financing things. I started raising private money. I started asking about seller financing and I started 
structuring deals creatively, which allowed me to then get into projects that I, I couldn't have gotten into previously or with a traditional loan and um, didn't know it at the time, but that was one of those um, constraints that was put on me that seemed very difficult and seemed like a setback, but was really a setup for things better in the future, which allowed me to then learn these skill sets that as the market heated up and as all these other things happen and COVID hits and weird, you know, corrections in the market occur, I was able to then utilize a lot of those strategies I learned early on that I didn't need for many, many years in doing real estate and then re-implement those into creatively structuring real estate deals to the point where I bought my oceanfront home in Charleston, South Carolina on seller financing and raising private money where I use none of my own credit, none of my own money in order to buy an oceanfront home, right? Yeah. Uh, same same thing with when I bought a 12,000 square foot mountain estate um, on 53 acres in North Carolina in the, in the Smokies using none of my own money, using none of my own credit because um, I knew those strategies. And then I bought an island the same way, using none of my own money, none of my own credit, seller financing, syndicated it the same way that I do my apartments and building it out to be an event type of a venue. But I own a hundred acre island in South Carolina now. You know, yeah. So like I would never be able to do those things if I didn't learn those skills early on and be able to then uh, execute swiftly when the market and opportunities did, did uh, present themselves. I love it. So to to highlight a part of what you said there, you know, that idea of a, you know, an paralysis analysis, right? And just, hey, overthinking, right? Overcomplicating. Um, you, you got in at 23. I bought my first property at 22. And I always tell people, I was probably just too naive or too dumb to ask certain questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there were certain risks that like inherently were there, but I just wasn't concerned about because I just didn't even think to ask it. And it, you know, it, it worked out over time. And so I think it's finding that balance, right? To your point, you don't want to get into something and not really understand, you know, the risks involved or, you know, what the strategy is. And at the same token, if you're waiting until you have all the answers, you're going to miss the opportunity or you're never actually going to take the action uh, because, you, you'll never have all of the answers. It's constantly mm -hmm. a learning game. So yeah, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add to that. I think you highlighted yeah, it well, yeah. but. Uh, no, I think, I think it's one of those, everybody wants a perfect deal. And I can assure you after doing thousands of deals over, shoot, I've been in the real estate industry since 2005, investing yeah. since 2008, nine. Yeah. So I've been investing for 15 years. I've been in the industry for 20 years almost. Yeah. And, um, the reality is there's no perfect deal. There's right. always hair on a deal somewhere, somehow. Um, and if you wait for a perfect deal, you will never get ahead. You'll, you'll, you'll be waiting. You, I would have been waiting for 20 years, right? And I still haven't found a perfect deal. And so home runs don't necessarily exist, right? And, and, and baseball games aren't won by home runs. They're won by base hits. It's just yep. continuously swinging the bat, getting on base, getting a good deal, not a perfect deal. And then another good deal, and not a perfect deal, and another good deal. And you hit enough good deals, eventually it starts compounding and runs start being scored. And all of a sudden you start winning. And, and that's what wins baseball games. And the same thing is done through real estate investing is you have to be just swinging the bat all the time, always making offers, always working on raising private money, taking down a good deal. I don't get uh, greedy over a deal. I, I you know, could I beat up sellers a little bit more if they're in a really desperate position and, and get an extra $20,000 of, of upside. Yeah, I probably could, but I don't, right. right? Because one, I believe in karma. And two, I just don't need to because I'm, yeah. I, I'm playing the long game. I'm not trying to get rich quick. I'm trying to build wealth, legacy wealth over time. 
And, uh, and so I'm just looking to hit base hits and I want good deals after good deal, after good deal, after good deal. And, um, and you know what happens is a lot of times you think you got a home run that ends up turning into a strikeout. And that's happened yeah. multiple times across two good to be true deals that, uh, that end up being that way. So, uh, be careful on that stuff and just take action Just start, yeah. you know, buying good deals and, and staying active in that space. And, um, eventually you're going to find yourself way ahead of the curve and, and, and see the compound effect set in where you find yourself, um, you know, uh, Hey, I thought, I, I, I thought I'd hit my goals a little bit sooner. Yeah. You think about that in the first 12, 24 months, and then all of a sudden the compound effect sets in and you will way exceed your goals within the next three to five years. If you just keep your head down and keep working at it. I love it. So for you talking about, you know, goals, um, you build the real estate business to about 10 properties and then a new opportunity presents itself and you say, well, maybe it's time to explore a new opportunity and, you know, transition from real estate. So talk about, you know, what intrigued you and, you know, making that decision to get out of something that you'd been so passionate about getting into uh, and, and how that played out. Yeah, well, I think it's naivety, right? And uh, when you're so over the next two years from 23 to 25, I accumulated 10 single family homes, including my own pr primary residence, yeah. which I house hacked, um, which means I rented out the bedrooms to a couple of my buddies. And then I lived there. My buddies paid me rent and paid majority of my mortgage and their share of utilities and stuff. So at the age of 25, I found myself in a position where these nine rentals plus my own primary residence generated enough residual income on a monthly basis that exceeded the operating expenses, the debt service and living expenses that I had personally in my life. And so yeah. it paid for the business, it paid for my personal, and it put me in a position where um, I wasn't rich, but I was financially free, yeah. right? If you define that by residual income exceeding your residual expenses, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, and there's a level of arrogance that comes in your 20s too, especially when, you, when you're financially free at 25. And so I think I'm... Um, I've got the Midas touch and I can just go and hit on different businesses and um, and be successful anywhere that I go. And so I started yeah. thinking the grass is greener on the other side. I, I start seeing these, these shiny objects and start chasing those shiny objects and um, uh, you come to realize, and this only comes with wisdom and from chasing shiny objects. And this is something you could tell uh, somebody in their twenties a hundred times and they will still chase the shiny object. Um, but I came to realize the grass isn't greener. It's fake mm. grass, right? Mm, like it, yeah. or, or it's, uh, it just looks greener, but it's really crabgrass. It takes a shitload of watering and a lot of time and attention in order to get it to where it's actually feel soft and nice. And you want to, um, you want to walk on it. And so, yeah. um, this is, this is one of those experiences. Again, another big constraint in my life. I'd rather it happen when I'm 25 than when I'm 35 or 45 or 55 though. Yeah. And, um, uh, quickly realized that the grass isn't greener. And so from, I sold my real estate other than my primary residence, but I sold the other nine houses. I only had my primary residence. I chased that shiny object for two years. It was a network marketing company. Yeah. And um, uh, I thought I could build a big residual income and not have the overhead or risk or any of those things. And um, it just, it didn't shake out the way that I had hoped. And, and it wasn't from lack of effort. It was just a bad vehicle. And so for me, I ended up um, finding myself with $80 in my bank account in August of 2012. I'm 27 at this time and um, uh, $25,000 in credit card debt. And I had 
I didn't have enough money to make the minimum payments on my credit card. And I was, I was buying peanut butter and eating peanut butter as my meal for lunch and breakfast <laughs> and dinner. Right. And because that gave me the most calories, the most fat, and uh, was the lowest price point. And so yeah. it was like doing things like that. I was selling, literally selling like side tables in my house on Craigslist for five, 10, $15 in order to try to get any money to come in. So that way I could pay for my living expenses. Yeah. Um, because I, again, had chased these shiny objects and got rid of what was working in order to try to find something new. And um, uh, what saved me was I sold my home and I moved back to Cleveland, Ohio. And so when I sold my home, that piece of real estate saved my butt. Mm -hmm. And I was able to uh, sell that. I had $50,000 of equity built up in that home, sold the home, put $50,000 in my bank account, paid down 25 grand of credit card debt, paid back some short-term loans and uh, pressed the reset button. Um, moved back in with my parents at the age of 27, which is a very humbling thing after you've yeah. been financially free. And uh, decided to get back into real estate because that's that's you know what worked in the first place, and uh, this is like the bottom of the market. So I was able to then go start buying things um, with other people's money. I met people in that other in business and with that other industry, and I learned a ton. I don't want to um, uh, say that I didn't learn a ton because I absolutely did learn yeah. so much and uh, so many entrepreneurial principles from that other business. I just it wasn't the right vehicle for me. And so by me being able to take those entrepreneurial uh, um, insights and those connections and then roll it into real estate um, is what really laid the foundation for me to then go and start buying up uh, more single family. And, and in Cleveland, you know, I, I talk like I started doing a lot in a, in a short amount of time. The reality is in Cleveland in 2012, you could buy houses in C and D class areas for like Ten to fifteen thousand dollars that were already rented for six hundred bucks a month, right? So wow, like, yeah. they were horrible, air, tough areas, right, to yeah. invest in, kind of war zones. Uh, but you could you could do a, what seemingly seemed like a lot with very little amount of money. And I had some people who invested a few hundred thousand dollars initially, and then over the course of a couple of years, that ended up turning into a million dollars of private money, and that allowed me to start buying apartment buildings and um, scaling a portfolio of of, uh, over a hundred doors in, yeah. um, in, in the span of a couple of years. And then that partnership with a couple of guys who brought the private money, I had an exclusive partnership with them, um, where they owned 67% of that entire portfolio. I did all the work and I only owned 33%. So that's another lesson is like, people get so focused on how much equity do I get? Yeah. Dude, it's not about this deal. It's about what does this deal set you up to do in the future, right? Yep. If this deal allows you to do 10 more deals, then who cares about the equity in this deal? Because it gives you the balance sheet. It gives you the experience. It gives you the expertise. It gives you the confidence to then go and raise money and, yep. and take down and get a seat at the table to negotiate and make offers on all these future deals that you can make a lot more money on or have more equity on because you sacrificed on deal one in order to see the long-term play. And I think that's a really important piece where people are like, ah, I want to own hundred percent of my business. And there's some people who have success doing that and that's fantastic, but you'll always be constrained if you're not willing to give up equity to either your investors or partners and, um, and that side of things. And, and if you think about Elon Musk, Elon yeah. Musk only owns 22% of Tesla and he's the wealthiest person in the world. Jeff Bezos only owns 11% of Amazon. Yeah. And he's the wealthiest person. And he got cut in half, right? So <laughs> right. I don't even know if he owns 11%. I think he owns five and a half percent because his wife owns the other half. Yeah. And he's still the second wealthiest person in the world, yeah. right? So like, you don't need that much equity 
um, if you understand the long-term vision and the growth concept that can come with giving up some equity in order to bring on investors, giving up some equity in order to attract A players, giving up some equity in order to do, you know, some sort of profit share to your team. And um, and so I, I, you know, was never that greedy. I always saw the long-term play in a lot of things. And it allowed me to, you know, again, gave up a lot of equity in that first yeah. hundred plus doors that I that I built. And um, and then we liquidated it and I'm pressing the reset button again. Yes. Uh, but I had the experience. I had the connections. I had the know-how. I learned on their time and on their dime. And mm-hmm. I didn't take that for granted. And it allowed me to then, boom, in 2015, take down an 80-unit apartment complex. By the end of 2016, I had another, I had about 200 doors. And by the end of 2017, I was at about 400, 450 doors. By the end of 2018, I picked up another 1,000 doors in 2018. So I was at 13 yeah. or 1,400 doors. 2019, I picked up another 2,000 doors. So I was at 33, 3,400 doors, right? And so this compound effect yeah. right, of being bad at business from 2007 to 2015 for eight years of being bad at business finally started taking grip and having this compound effect. Um, by 2020, I had you know, 3,300 doors and then kept on accumulating. I got up to about 4,800 doors was the most I ever owned at one time. And, um, uh, and you think like, oh, there's all these like graduated steps. You started out as a broker and then wholesaling and then flipping and then buying and holding single family and then buying and holding small multifamily. And now I'm doing these large commercial deals. Um, now the next step of growth for me is refining and actually yeah. getting rid of a lot of properties that are management intensive, that have business partners or joint venture partners that are not now carrying their weight. Yep. And a lot of those, well, Tim, if you just didn't do those deals in the first place, you wouldn't have to deal with that. Yeah, well, they were stepping stones to get to where I am. And now I can refine. And if you only wait for home runs, you're just going to strike out. You're going to be swinging for the fences. You're going to have way more strikeouts. And there's no chance I'd be where I am today if I didn't do some C-class deals, if I didn't do some smaller deals, if I didn't do some joint venture deals yeah. uh, with other operating partners and uh, learned a lot on the way. And so... um would I have done it differently? I don't know if I would have, because w- yeah. I don't know if it would have gotten me to where I am today. Are there things I wish I knew earlier on? Yes, of course, but um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change it. Absolutely. So thinking about that, and, and I love how you kind of gave, you know, where you were to where you're at. And yeah, I mean, that's a hockey stick growth, right? I mean, in six years to go from uh, liquidating an entire, you know, hundred units to then, you know, to forty eight hundred units, and now different mindset and, you know, adjustment of the business model. But I think when people hear that one thing they're going to want to know about is, well, how do you scale that? Right. How is that scalable for you to go from a hundred to 4,800 in in a short timeframe? How do you have capacity for that? And I know earlier you mentioned um, hiring people on your team. So I want you to talk about that. But the second part is uh, Usain Bolt has this uh, line where he was interviewed after winning the Olympics and they go, you know, isn't that amazing that it took you nine seconds to win or whatever, nine point, however many he goes, well, I trained four years for those nine seconds. And you think about your journey and you say, gosh, I mean, it took eight years of, you know, learning and different experiences to get to where you're at today. Uh, well, 15, 18 years in total, right? But specifically on the investing side, a little bit uh, shorter time frame. But what does that mean for the hockey stick for you from where you're at now to 10 years from now too? So talk mm-hmm. a little bit about those two different dynamics. 
Yeah. So, so we talk about hockey stick growth and I use that as an analogy too. And as you're talking about it, I'm like, you know what it actually is? It's an inverted hockey stick. It's not, <laughs> it's not the, the part you hit the puck with on the ground and then it goes exponential. Yeah. No, the handle was on the ground for a very long time. And then I finally went like this, yeah. the part that hit, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, that's, uh, that's what you gotta, but, but here's the thing, real estate's not an experiment, right? Like mm-hmm. I understood that. And so I always had this long-term perspective. And I think if you have a long-term perspective, you don't let the, the highs and lows and, and dude, they always affect you a little bit, yeah. but they affected me less yes. when I kept a long-term perspective, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't get too high. I did uh, when things were good, right? Because I was like, I'm not counting my money until it actually hits the bank. Right. And yeah. by that time, by the time it hit the bank, I was already past the excitement phase onto the next deal kind of a thing. Yeah. So, um, dude, maybe that's, that's, uh, something I should have stepped back and paid a little bit more attention to and celebrated some of those wins. But when you're just paying attention to the long-term phase, I didn't get as high, but I also didn't get as low, right? I didn't yep. let a, a buyer that didn't perform, it fell out and a deal comes back in the market. Like, dude, that happens all the time. I never let that, I never celebrate those wins too early. And so it's like, it's like, uh, you know, how do you stop from, uh, on the emotional roller coaster of real estate or emotional roller coaster of entrepreneurship, how do you stop from flying off the roller coaster? Well, you yeah. can't, you keep the bar down, right? Yeah. You keep it in front. And so you keep the bar down by having a long-term mindset, yes. a long-term outlook of um, of where this is going to go over the next 10 years. And if you're thinking 10, 20, 30 years down the road, then the little bumps and uh, and things don't don't get in your way because you're you're looking too far down the path, um, way farther down the path than uh, than letting those little things affect you. So that's one thing that I would say. Yeah. Um, as far as like the the growth, how did that happen? Yeah, uh, I, I would attribute it to two things, and the first would be mentorship. Mm. And I, I joined a mastermind in 2015, okay. and that and that mastermind. If you're not familiar with the mastermind, like yeah. go read Napoleon Hill's uh, "Think and Grow Rich." He talks about a mastermind. A mastermind is essentially when at least two or more people get in a room together and they brainstorm ideas and strategies and concepts and visions. Uh, to the point where it creates this new third mind, a mastermind that can problem solve and be resourceful enough to break through any sort yeah. of uh, struggles and barriers and bottlenecks that you might face. And, uh, you know, God willing, you have more than two people in that room. And my first mastermind was about 15 people in a room. And we just went around the table talking about struggles and mm. uh, things that we were facing and successes and things that worked for some people that they would have done again or things that they would have done differently. And that we were able to troubleshoot everybody's problems that were these huge bottlenecks in our own brains and able to easily solve them and punch through any glass ceilings and stuff that, that they might be facing. And joining a mastermind, which is pay to play, right? I yep. $30,000 to join that mastermind. Yes. Um, and 2000, that was in 2015. In 2014 is the first year I ever made six figures, made 130 grand. I joined that master, or I, or I attended that mastermind in February, and I implemented what they told me to do starting in March, which is hire an assistant and a couple other things. And over the next 10 years, 10 months, I'm sorry, 10 months of 2015, I tripled my income from the year before, right? Somebody might say, dude, $30,000 is a lot of money to invest. Yeah. Well, if you can make an extra, like I made 400 grand that year. I made an extra $260,000. So $30,000 invested for essentially a 10X multiple 
is a pretty good ROI. And yeah. I understood the, the importance of investing in yourself and investing in relationships and relationship capital, right? And from the people that I met through that mastermind, from the insights I got from that mastermind, it directly correlated to my, my net worth and my income growing exponentially and my growth happening yeah. because I had this board of advisors that I yeah. meet with essentially every quarter that can help me troubleshoot any problems that I was facing. And that was so tremendously impactful that it allowed me to, again, have that hockey stick growth. Um, and part of that was having access to resources, having access to connections, having access to people um, who could then advise me on how to grow a team. And the yep. team thing was what allowed me to grow because um, what do they say? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to yep. go far, go as a team. Yeah. And, and again, having a long-term mindset I've always naturally talked about where we were going. Here's all the struggles right now, but here's where we're going. Here's where I see this going to. And that allowed me to attract a players of the team who I didn't have to sell them on. Uh, I, I couldn't sell them, right? Because we didn't yeah. have a lot going on at the time, but I could tell them, here's where we're going to go, right? Here's yeah. what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to accomplish. Here's how we're going to make an impact. And that allowed me to paint the long-term vision to attract a players who are willing to sacrifice and go through the hard times and the growth with me early on. And now guess what? Now they're partners in my company. Now they have equity. Now they have incomes that are in the top one-tenth of 1% and net worths in the top one-tenth of 1% because they believed in me early on and I was able to paint them. I wouldn't have attracted them if I couldn't paint the long-term vision. So I've always had that long-term vision and I've always talked about, here's the struggle right now. Here's what we're dealing with right now. But guys, I promise you, there's light at the end of the tunnel and we're going to get to this. And we're going to get to that. And, um, and there's always growth and there's always struggles. And at each level that you hit is another level of problems and struggles and headaches. But now we have this like cohesive force where our arms are linked. And, you know, when there's a, a half dozen of you running through brick walls, you can, you can accomplish anything. Well, I love that. And I love how it parlays into what you said earlier, you know, and at different phases of your life, what you give up to learn is different, right? In your teens and 20s, you might be giving up your time to learn because you're not going to get compensated for it. And later in life, it may not be that somebody needs, you know, a 30 year old intern, right? Uh, it's But hey, if you pay to be in this room, then you can learn that way. And so there is that, you know, cost benefit analysis where, hey, if I'm willing to give you you know, 10 hours of my time a week so I can get mentored by you and help you. Well, I'm going to learn that way or down the road. Hey, maybe they don't want my free help, but if I pay 15, 20,000, $30,000, they'll say, yeah, you can come learn and you can come be a part of these mm -hmm. conversations. And so that's important to, uh, to realize as well. For sure. For sure. And there's, there's like, uh, there's things that people don't even like, oh, well, I'm just paying to, you know, paying $30,000. $30,000 does not change that mentor's life, right. right? It did not change that guy's life. You know whose life it changed? My life. You yes. know why? Because I knew that if I write a check for $30,000, I want to get my $30,000 back. I want to right. get a return on my $30,000. So I showed up as a more serious student. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I had to go through some sort of personal, I actually got drunk before I, I, I wired this guy money because I wasn't confident enough. And when you get to a level where you're willing to invest $30,000 in yourself because you're confident enough that you can do something with that information and the, in and the insights and the, the resources and the connections that you're going to make from investing 30000 Dude, 
That's powerful. Yeah. To believe enough in yourself to write a check for $30,000. Dude, like that then transforms me and how I show up to meetings better and how I show up to my team better and how I show up to my relationships better. And imagine now being in a room of 20 people who all believe enough in themselves and their ability to make things happen where everybody invested $30,000 to be in that room. Like, can you imagine what can be accomplished? It's a powerful, powerful position. And not only that, but the $30,000 also keeps everybody out who's not willing to spend that money, who doesn't yep. believe. In so it, it expedites the relationship. Like how many, how many networking events, free networking events do you have to go to in order to find 20 badasses like that in a room? Yes. You got to go to infinite friggin' yep. like, like uh, uh, network, free networking events versus dropping a check and you just pay to get proximity of those people. And then boom, they make an introduction to, for you yep. to somebody that does hard money lending for them that took them 15 years to develop that relationship. And they do an email introduction. And all of a sudden you instantaneously have access to somebody that took them 15 years to develop. Like that is how you expedite time. That's how you expedite success. If, if there's one, if there's one principle or one idea that shortcuts success, that's the only one. Yes. It's paying to be in the room because you can very tangibly see how you can expedite timelines by doing that. You know who I don't make introductions to is somebody who's begging for free and not willing to invest in themselves or not willing to pay to play because they don't have the level of confidence. And I don't know if they're going to take that information, take that connection and waste everybody's time or yep. actually put it to good use. But if you're investing in yourself, that's the differentiator for me and for a lot of other people who operate at a big level is yep. they know that you're a serious student if you're willing to invest in yourself, right? They know that you're confident. They know that you're willing to, or that you're willing to do the work because you want to yep. see a return on your investment. And they know that, that you will do something if you make that introduction, you make that connection. So if you want to differentiate yourself, you pay to be in the room. I love it. Well, Tim, I want to say thank you so much for your time and sharing your story and just all the, uh, uh, you know, pivotal moments that have led to where you're at. And yeah, you just got to promise me that we'll do this again here in three or five years. And, uh, you know, we'll look at where the business has grown to and how you've scaled it and uh, all the all the amazing things you're continuing to do. It's exciting, man. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate all the value that you're putting out there. And thank you for having me on the podcast. And uh, if there's anything that I can do to support you or support your listeners, don't hesitate to reach out on, on social media. Um, I'm always putting free content out there and trying to just help people with with personal finance, with entrepreneurship, with lifestyle design, and um, and pay it forward. There are a lot of people who poured poured into me and helped me. And so if I can, you know, convey that and, and again pay it forward, uh, I'd love to do so. So appreciate you again for having me, Phil.